I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Father, we ask for your grace this morning. I specifically ask that you would speak through me. I, I, I cannot convict hearts. I can't change souls. I, I can't do it, but I know that you can and that your word says that you have not because you ask not. And so I'm asking this morning that your spirit would penetrate deeply the souls of the people here this morning and that you would change them. Amen. So here, let me ask this question right away for us this morning. Because I know that none of you probably have ever done this at all in your entire lives. So I'm going to ask the most ridiculous question that I can ask to start out this message. And that's that, have you ever done something wrong and then immediately knew that what you did was wrong? Now I'm sure, I'm looking at all of you and I'm seeing that that's probably none of you, right? I'm probably just projecting what I've done before. Right, you you know you know that times those times when when you do that thing that's wrong and then immediately your conscience kicks in and you're like oh that was a bonehead mistake I am in the wrong here and how do we normally deal with that wrongness or that conviction or our conscience stirring inside of us I I would say at least from what our culture shows us. And what humans show us in general, there are two ways that we deal with that immediate, quick, conscience conviction of knowing that we did something wrong. The, the first way that we respond is we run away. We know that we're wrong, and we run away from the situation. We distance ourselves from the person that we've wronged. Or we delay our interaction with them. We make ourselves busy. We don't want to face the person that we've wronged. Or the second way that we deal with wronging a person is self-justification. <laughs> right? So we explain all of the reasons why we were right that we were wrong. Because why we were wrong wasn't necessarily our fault. It was that person's fault or that thing's fault or whatever. Right? Just go ahead and look on Facebook. Watch the news. Listen to a politician. Talk to a neighbor and quickly you'll see that these are the ways that we respond to being wrong. Why? Because inside we're feeling this shame. And we don't really know what to do with the shame that's inside of us for being wrong, so we respond by either running so that way we don't have to deal with the shame, or justification, so that way we can try to explain away our shame or convince ourselves that we really don't have the shame that's in our hearts. It may come across quiet, and you may try to stuff that shame as far as possible, put it in a box, lock it up, 
and bury it as far as you can. Or it might be through angry outbursts of self-justification to try to belittle or scare somebody into why your wrongness is right. This is the way that our culture, this is the way that we see humans deal with their shame. We've been going through a series looking at the gospel. The crown jewel, the the good news for humanity. And what we've seen so far, and and what I've tried, the, the picture I've tried to paint for us is that there are five key words that carry us along the gospel. That is God, man, redemption, renewal, and glory. And we've looked at God and man, and we're going to make our transition now to redemption. That we are, or can be, a redeemed people. And this is what we're going to see this morning in this message. This is what I'm hoping to present to us this morning. is is simply just just this, this thing. is that in your rebellion and rejection of God, God promised you grace. In your rejection and rebellion of God, God promises you grace. And we'll see this unfold this morning in three different ways. We'll take a look at God's promise. And we'll look at why then you need God's promise. And then we'll see how Jesus fulfills this promise. So if we look at our passage, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're, we're seeing the, what some call the proto-evangelium. The first announcement of the gospel. Some say this is God's first promise to mankind. Others consider this the, the first establishment or, or the, the, first, uh, the first talking of, from God to His creation of the covenant of grace. But how did we get here? Why are we at this point? Well, just to briefly recap why we're at this point, we we saw that the infinite creator of the universe created all things. And the very last thing that he created was mankind. He created you and I. He created us as the apex of his creation. He created Adam and Eve, and he said, Adam and Eve, you are created in my image and likeness. You are the the crown jewel of this creation. You, You are the apple of my eye of this creation. You are the pinnacle, the thing that I look at and I say that I created it and it was very good. You're it, Adam and Eve. And so because of that, there are a couple of things that I want you to do. I want you to represent me in this garden that I've created, in this creation that I've created. I want you to represent me. I want you to represent me by making a ton of other image bearers. And then what I want you to do is I want you to care for my creation. 
And by you caring for my creation and you making other people to represent my image and likeness, it is a way to magnify me, God tells them. To worship me. To represent me. And what then do we see next? As God is telling them this, He says, but there is one tree that I ask that you not eat of. Have anything else, anything, besides this one tree. Don't eat from this tree. He puts a restriction. He he commands them to do something. He shows that he still is authoritative over Adam and Eve by telling them, do not eat of this tree. Don't eat the fruit. Don't touch it. Not touch it, just don't eat it. Eve is the one who says we're not to touch it. And then we're introduced to the serpent. And as the serpent is slithering his way up to Eve, he tempts her. How does he tempt her? He tempts her to reject God's authority. He tempts her to say, uh, God, I don't trust what you've said. God, I think you're withholding something from me. I mean, guys, this is what we're seeing in the 21st century. This is what we've seen since the beginning of time is that mankind, we, we are just, we are fools to think that we can create our own rules in this life. And yet, time after time, that's what we continue to do. I get to decide what I want to do. I get to decide what I want to be. I get to decide how I want to live. And so we reject, just like Adam and Eve have, the authority of God. As the serpent whispers into Eve's ear, did God really say this, Eve? Did did he actually say that? that? Is that really what he meant? All the while, what God is, or what Satan is doing is he's tempting her to question the authority of God. To question the the goodness of their Creator. How often do you find yourself in the same situation as Adam and Eve? Being tempted to think that God is withholding something from you. For to only lead to shame. As Eve takes of the fruit and she eats it, and Adam sees as he passively stands by and watches her that Eve didn't die, Adam is thinking to himself, what, what the, you, God said that, that you would die. Okay, give me that fruit. And Adam eats of it. And what happens when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit? Do you remember? You, you, maybe you don't know the story, and if you don't know the story, that's fine, because I'm, I'm going to tell you, and if you do know the story, then great, I'm going to tell you it again. It says their eyes were opened to their nakedness. 
They felt shame. Their innocence was stripped from them. And what's the very first thing that they do? They, they try to hide their shame. They try to cover their shame up. And not only do they try to hide their shame and cover their shame up with God's creation, it then says that they hear God's footsteps and, he, and they run from Him and they use His creation to then hide from Him. Does that sound familiar? I wonder if you've ever responded to your shame by running and hiding from the one that you have wronged. I, I wonder why we do that. But, but it doesn't just stop right there, does it? Because as God calls them out and then they call, what is the first thing that then they do? God looks at Adam and Adam, and, and, and Adam says, well, she made me do it. And Eve looks at the serpent and, the serpent, and Eve says, uh, the serpent made me do it. All the while, the serpent is smirking at God, saying nothing. Self-justification. There was no repentance. There was no remorse. There was, I am going to justify why I did what I did. In their shame, we see Adam and Eve responding two ways. We see them responding by running from the one that they've wronged and then justifying themselves before the one that they are wronged. How familiar should this be to us? I mean, this doesn't take very long for humans to do this, right? You just live with a bunch of kids for a little while and you'll see they naturally grow into this. Some kids run away from their shame. Some kids try to justify their shame. And we look at our world that we are living in today and we see that people are either running from the shame that they're feeling or they're justifying the shame that they're feeling by trying to embrace the shame and explain why they don't have shame. It's the same way that Adam and Eve responded in the garden is the same way that we respond again and again and again and we just don't ever really seem to learn from it and so God he gives us a promise a sweet sweet promise I mean look how comforting must this have been for Adam and Eve we, we see something so incredible about this pr promise who was the one that God commanded to not eat of the fruit of the tree it was Adam and Eve so God could have rightly and justly looked at Adam and Eve right away and said, you guys are at fault. You guys deserve my just judgment, my just wrath. He could have sent them out of the garden immediately, but before he sends them out of the garden, he gives them a promise to latch on to. What a sweet promise this had to have been for Eve and Adam. As they feel this shame, God first turns his direction to the serpent he doesn't first turn his direction to adam and eve he looks at the serpent and he says i'm dealing with you first you and me we got some things to talk about and so the curse for the serpent ends up being a promise for mankind and within this one promise, we see three facts unfold before us of what this promise will look like. First, we see that there will be hostility. 
There will be enmity. There will be a battle between the woman and the serpent. Let's just call it what it is. Eve, she was getting a little too friendly with the serpent. Adam and Eve got a little too friendly with the serpent. They listened more than they should have. And they trusted way more than they ought to. And so what's the first thing that God does in this promise? Is that He promises that that friendship is done. Look, I know some of you have daughters. And what if your daughter brings over a boy and says, here's my new friend. And constantly this new friend is saying, but did your parents really say you couldn't do that? Oh, dad, you better cut that tie right away. You better make sure that that relationship's broken, right? And so it is with God, the Father, as he's looking at his creation, he's cutting that tie between the serpent and humanity and saying, no longer will you enter into a friendship, into a partnership. I'm cutting that thing in half. There is going to be hostility. You will not find your enjoyment from this friend. He will bring you nothing but misery. And that's what we are constantly seeing throughout the pages of Scripture. Satan is never looking out for us. Satan is looking out for himself. He's, he's looking out for his own advantage, and you're just a pawn. He looks at you as a means to his ends. He, he looks at you and asks, how can I best use them, abuse them, and then throw them in the trash when I'm done with them? That's what he's looking at you as. And God knows that. So he says, there will be hostility between the two of you. And so we see throughout history, Satan causing mischief. Don't we, we see this in chapter 4. We see this in the very next chapter as Adam and Eve have children and what happens? Their oldest son where Eve says, finally, I have this offspring. I have this offspring now. And what happens? Cain murders his younger brother Abel. Look, if you don't know this about me, I, I was a mischief maker. Uh, you know, my friends and I, we would drive around. This is now going to be recorded, so anything I say can be used against me. I mean, we used to go around. I mean, what Satan does is he likes to take ordinary situations and cause mischief. He doesn't care. Uh, my, my, me and my friends, we, in, high school, we would, in high school, we would cause mischief. We, we would buy 99-cent candies, and we would go around to the bars and throw them at, at people who were smoking to see their reaction. Just because we wanted to. Just because we wanted to cause mayhem and confusion and destruction. This is exactly what Satan does is he knows the fullness of our hearts and so he sows seeds of deception and confusion and chaos. 
because of the hostility that has been promised. But through this promise, we see another fact. So we see the first fact that there's going to be hostility, that the friendship between humanity and the serpent is ended. But the second promise, or the second fact that we see in this promise, is that there will be a loser. Hey, look, I don't know who the one that made participation trophies. Don't pin that on my generation, please. My, my generation, we just received the participation trophies. We, we didn't think of the idea. In, in Little League, we weren't, we weren't swinging the bat saying, hey, I want that participation trophy. Somebody had to have thought of it. <laughs> Baby boomers and our parents. Right? So I'm just saying. I'm just saying. The serpent is not going to win a participation trophy. God promises his destruction. God promises that his head will be crushed, that there will be a fatal blow to this one. He will not receive a participation trophy. He will receive eternal torment in the lake of fire for his actions. And how sweet must it have been for Adam and Eve to hear that the serpent will lose. Do you live daily with the understanding that the serpent will lose? How often as Christians do we walk around gazing at our belly buttons going, poor me, thinking that he's not going to lose. He loses. In this first promise, in this first announcement of the gospel, God promises that the serpent, that the enemy, will lose. He will be destroyed. I mean, can you imagine Jesus knowing this as he's saying this to his disciples? The gate, look, guys, the gates of hell will not prevail. I win. The very first promise tells you that. And yet, oftentimes, we continue to live in bondage and slavery to our sin and captivity to our sin because we don't think we have freedom that we have. We still practically function as if the serpent will win. We still practically function as if we have to give in to those. Did God actually say? So the second fact here is that Satan will lose. We're told the outcome. Which the third fact means this, we have a winner. If there's a loser in something, then there's a winner in something. I guess unless you're playing soccer, then you can both be losers. That doesn't mean that people who play soccer are losers. It just means that you can end the game 0-0 and nobody wins, which means that, you're, that you've lost. Or you lose. Whichever one. Soccer's the one that started participation trophies, right? We heard it from Rita. <laughs> now I'm never going to be invited to Rita's soccer games ever again. And we loved coming. Sorry. <clears throat> we have a winner. 
as the serpent tries to bite at the foot of the offspring of the woman. What the serpent doesn't realize is it's putting itself in danger. The serpent doesn't understand and realize that by biting at the heel of the offspring of the woman, that it will lose, that it will be crushed. But notice how we still see that the offspring of this woman will bruise his heel. The heel of the offspring of the woman will be bruised. We know that this points to Jesus. Spoiler alert. It points to Jesus. By his death, by his hands and feet being nailed to a cross, by him being whipped, bloodied, and bruised to the point where he's unrecognizable by his family, by his disciples, by those looking on. He's bruised for us. He is pierced for us. He dies for us. And he raises three days later, showing that he victoriously is our champion. He is the victor, he is the winner. And when we trust in Him, we receive that victory. Not by our own doing, not by your impressiveness, not by your work, but by His work. And so we see that God makes a promise. Immediately when Adam and Eve fall, God's gut reaction as He's looking at the serpent and as He's cursing the serpent is to make a promise so Adam and Eve can latch onto before He disciplines them and sends them out of His garden. What a good and gracious God we have. How kind was that of God before disciplining Adam and Eve and before sending them out of the garden, he gives them a promise to latch onto, to remember. Why does he do this? He does this because, because they need that promise to hold on to. Just like you need God's promise to hold on to. We are an unfaithful creation to our Creator. That's just, that's just how we're born. That's our initial reaction of life is to, to reject God and the things that He has given us. To pursue our own authority. To look to ourselves to establish our own rules. To give in to the serpent and his lies. We can't hold up the promise. You can't hold up the promise to be a faithful creation to your great creator. 
This is why God gave us a promise to hold on to. This is why God gives us this promise of grace immediately to show us that despite our rebellion, that He still will be gracious with you when you come to Him and repent. And, and I know, like, we, we just, we don't believe that we're as bad as what we really are. We just, we think that, you know, we're just a little bit bad. Because, because you know, we're not the ones in, in jail. We're not the ones in prison. We're, we're not the ones out doing, you know, that thing. I'm not, I'm not out at the bar. I'm not, I'm not taking any drugs. I'm not doing those big things. I'm not murdering anyone. That's a pretty good track record, hey? And so we justify ourselves and reason with ourselves to make ourselves believe that, you know what? I'm actually a pretty okay person. I'm pretty good. I haven't done too many bad things. And you know, the bad things that I've done, like, you know, cheating on my math test when I was in fifth grade, that's not even all that bad. You know, the kid behind me was cheating every single math test. I only did it once. Like, come on, let's stop fooling ourselves. Let's stop buying into the lie of the serpent. Did God really say that you're that sinful? Yes, we are that sinful, and we're even more sinful than that sinfulness. And so we justify. We hide. We run. Did God really say there are only two genders? Did God really say that a man should marry a woman or a woman should marry a man? Did God really say pornography isn't looking at adultery? Did God really say, you know, this is, I've had this conversation too many times, so this is why it's coming to my mind. I mean, this is just a plant. What if, what if I smoke weed? Well, you know, barley comes from the ground so I can just overindulge in alcohol. It's okay. Did God really say that I can just come to church and do all of the moral duties? Did God really say I have to trust in Jesus only for my salvation? And we're lied to and tempted to. And as life goes on, what starts to build up? The shame. Because our internal conscience, the Holy Spirit, well, our internal conscience, the, the, the moral code that has been written on our minds, tells us, this seems off. I enjoy doing this, but it still seems off. And as we continue to indulge more by rejecting God, more shame builds up. And what do you do? You run from God. You hide from God. You use His creation to busy yourself to not have to go before Him. Your shame keeps you from coming to Him or you start to justify. Well, but, but God, 
Or, there can't possibly be a God. He won't let me do what I want to do, and because He won't let me what I want to do, there, there could possibly never be such thing as a God who holds me responsible for my actions. Or, well, God, didn't I do this for you in your name? And didn't I do this for you in your name? And that for you in your name? Didn't I do all of these good things? Look at how good I am, God. As we justify ourselves or we run from God, it's the shame of internally knowing that something's off with us and that something that's off with us is that we are a sinful creature that has rebelled and rejected God's authority. That's the the root cause of all of this. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that although you have rejected God and although you have looked to yourself for your own authority, God is gracious and will have you It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much shame that you have in your heart. He will forgive you when you come to Him. He'll wipe the slate clean. He'll forgive you as far as the east is from the west. He'll embrace you when you trust in His Son, His beloved Son. He will make you His beloved child. He died to take your shame and sin away. He died to give you joy and peace. He he died as a gentle and lowly Savior saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. This is the Son of God, the, the, the promised offspring, born of a woman. I mean, don't we see? This is, this is exactly what animates Jesus' heart. By going to the people who feel the shame and regret for the sins that they have in their heart or uh, who, who distance themselves from Him or who justify themselves. Two people off the top of my head. What about the woman at the well? Who was trying to hide and escape from everybody in her community and who shows up? Just wasn't by random. Jesus shows up. And what does he do? He confronts that shame and he says, come and drink of me. Let go of it. Look to me. What about Nicodemus? That religious ruler who was justifying himself by using his morality to say, of course I'm good with my creator. Of course I'm okay. Of course I'm on the ends. Look at how great I am. And he's confronted with Jesus. And he says, as he's having these conversations with Jesus, what is he doing? He's justifying himself. He's trying to reason and figure out this whole thing. And yet Jesus makes the same offer to Nicodemus that he makes to the woman at the well. Friends, this I'm just I just want you to believe that there is grace for you. And I just want you to believe that there is grace for you before it is too late. Because when it is too late, it is too late. Uh, you know, I was just I was, reading a, uh, I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. When, and he was explaining when it's too late, it's too late. And as you are in hell, you will look up and, and you will see the, the possibility to be saved written in the clouds but it will still be too late for you. 
And as time goes on and a thousand years go on, you will look up and see that same message. But it will be too late. Now is the time for salvation. Don't wait. Look to Jesus and be saved. You don't have to do anything. But just look to Him. Trust Him. He came to pay the penalty of your sin. He came to make you a son or daughter. Look to Him and be saved. Quit looking to yourself. Quit looking to this world. That will only bring you shame. Look to God. So as we conclude, there are just a few things that I'd like to encourage you with or apply. If you are a a Christian, then you've experienced the promise of this grace on your life. You've experienced the promise of God's grace. And because you've experienced that, now that means that you should walk in a certain way. And so I just want to give you four ways that through this passage, you might now walk. If the Spirit has come into you and has converted you and has left you changed, then you should walk a certain way. So, four different ways that if you have experienced this promise firsthand, the promise of God's grace. First, you can have hope and confidence in what God says. He is a faithful God. He said this all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He said this all the way back in the beginning that He would send this offspring to crush the head of the serpent and bruise his heel. And guess what happens? We see that He faithfully carries that out in Jesus. So, oh man, you can trust the Word of God. You can trust that what His promises say will happen. You can trust it. You can be assured of it. You can have hope and confidence that God, the God of the Scriptures, is a faithful God who will not go back on His promises even if it means sending His Son to die for your sins. He is a faithful God who keeps His promises. Next. The next way that we live if we've experienced these promises is that we worship and live as He he intended. Look, stop just dipping your toe in the water. Jump in. Jump all the way in. You're not doing yourself any good by just dipping your toe in the water just a little bit. Jump all the way in and experience the fullness of what God wants you to experience. That is communion with Him. Do the uncomfortable thing. What I mean by jumping all the way in... 
jumping in is some of you are still continuing to, to have the same sin in your life that you've had now for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. If you've been born again, you have the Spirit to have victory over that. You can walk in Christ. There is a way of an escape for you. You don't have to continue to live in anger. You don't have to continue to live as a lover of money. You don't have to continue to, to live with, with a lustful heart or, or a complaining attitude. You don't have to live feeling the urge of the Holy Spirit saying, I want, I want you to evangelize to that person, and then you just not doing it. You can do it. So jump all the way in and worship and live as He has intended you to. The third, expect to be bruised. Expect to be bruised. Your flesh, Satan, and the followers or his fallen angels, they do not want you to jump in. They want to bruise you and to keep you from coming to enjoy the fullness of Christ. What do I mean by expect to be bruised? What I, what I mean by expect to be bruised is expect to meet trials of various kinds. Life, life doesn't magically get better by becoming a Christian. You can expect to trials you can expect to be bruised but you can count it joy when you meet those trials of various kinds because your bruising is not wasted your bruising puts you in good company that of the likes of jesus lastly resist the devil In this passage, we see that there will be hostility. And in this account between Adam and Eve and the serpent, we know his tactics, we know his game plan, we know what he's going to try to do. Look, but just don't touch. Touch, but don't eat. Eat, but don't swallow it. He, we know that he is going to tempt you to doubt the promises of God. The commands of God. We know that what he's going to do is he's going to tempt you to reject God's authority to trust in your own authority. So resist the devil and know that there will be a way of an escape. Despite our rejection of God, what we see in the gospel is that God promises grace for those who come to Him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and kindness that Your Word is faithful and true. That we can trust 
that what you say will happen and it will happen. So please help us this morning to have greater faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.